Because there are innumerable things beyond the range of human understanding, we constantly use symbolic terms to represent concepts that we cannot define or fully comprehend. This is one reason why all religions employ symbolic languages or images. But this conscious use of symbols is only one aspect of a psychological fact of great importance. Man also produces symbols unconsciously and spontaneously in the form of dreams. Nat, we're back on Made You Think. Good to be back. How's it going? Good, good. This is an episode we've been teasing for a while. Uh, we've been talking about Carl Jung, I feel like, for four years of sporadic episodes. In I think it came up a lot in like the Jordan Peterson episode that we had done, maybe some of the other early like Power of Myth type of uh, episodes as well. Totally. Yeah, I, this was one where I feel like we've had a couple of these where we kind of realized that we've referenced a certain book a number of times and then... We're like, oh, you know, we should probably like actually read that book, <laughs> talk yeah. about it. Although I guess with with Young, it wasn't so much a. Uh, is it Young or Jung? I've heard both. We always do this. Yeah, I don't know actually myself. <laughs> Looks like Jung. Jung is the right answer. Anyway, yeah. So and this was it was kind of an interesting book because it's not really just his book. I guess he published this shortly before he died and he teamed up with a number of his what like colleagues or students in order to write it as a as a team. So it's broken into five sections with uh, each author taking a different section. So Jung does the first one, just kind of like the the intro and the higher level one and then his uh colleagues take on other sections after that so it was kind of kind of neat in that sense too because it's not just his thoughts and his work like you also get to hear other people who have worked with him interpreting his work and like you know, sharing their their versions of it which that was kind of a fun way to share somebody's life work or the summation of all their work over the course of their life yeah, and it's also the cool thing, at least in that first chapter too, is is he kind of introduces it, and then everybody else builds off of that in their own their own way. Yeah, it was it was really well done. I actually didn't know that going into the book that it wasn't entirely written by him. Um, yeah, I didn't know it either. I remember I remember wondering why there were so many other authors <laughs> yeah. on on the on the cover page or whatever. I was like, what are all these other names doing here? And then you get to the table of contents and. At first, my first reaction was, oh, shoot, we shouldn't do this book. This isn't really his book. But then they explain how it's structured. And I realized, oh, this is actually kind of a cool way for them to do it. And it makes sense. So it would be interesting to go back and read some of his other earlier work. That's not a summary like this. But it, this definitely yeah. did feel like a good starting point, at least as an intro to some of his ideas. Yeah. And it, the the like main idea, it feels like that he talks about, which I think he's talked about in all of his other work as well, which is why this is a good kind of like summation or collection, I guess, of his core idea is the sort of unconscious brain idea, right? Or it's like he has the whole collective unconscious idea, which is slightly different, but it's basically that there are, there's almost like a shadow side to your psychology that you can't directly tap into. Uh, and by you, like the terminology is kind of interesting here because when we say you, it's probably talking about the like ego part of your brain, the part that you can actually access. But then there's sort of the symbolic unconscious below the surface, I guess, is the term I would use. That also is part of your brain, obviously, but is just 
you know, you don't have direct access to. And the way that you access it is through these sort of symbols, which often arise in dreams. Or, I mean, they can happen at other times too, but yeah, the dreams are the the thing that he talks about largely here. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting in one sense because it's so different from how I feel like we talk about psychology today because he this is, I would argue, at least a work of psychology. He's attempting to give us better tools to understand our mind and to help other people with their own psychological challenges. But there's no talk of science in the current sense around psychology. It's it's much closer to philosophy or mm. yeah. experience and practice in the way he talks about it. At, at basically no point in the book does he say that we conducted this study and we found yeah. that you know when this number of people is ha- are having this kind of dream it means this thing it's much more like argumentative it's, almost it's actually the opposite he actually does say at one point i i did not highlight this part but it was somewhere in that first chapter where he said i think maybe it was freud or it was somebody else who said that certain symbols always mean certain things and he was saying that the symbol the interpretation of the symbol is so individualistic you can't apply those blanket rules like you can't yeah. apply water. You can't say water always means the same thing. If you have a dream and I have a dream, the symbol, the representation, the thing that water is representing might be completely different for the two of us. Right. Um, so it's actually the opposite of sort of these like in, these rules, these like broader rules that uh, can be applied. And to your point about like the studies thing. Yeah, that's actually a good I didn't even think about that. But maybe it's a good thing since all these psych studies can't be replicated anyway. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, that, that's what I was saying makes it makes some of his work even more compelling is he's not he's not trying to argue that this is scientific fact and you you know now he has the answer. He's saying that through sufficient practice and through enough like learning what these different symbols and dreams can represent, you can get closer to an understanding of how the subconscious might be interfacing with the conscious mind. And he uh, he actually, maybe this is the, the section you're talking about, because uh, I, I did have it highlighted where he says, modern man may assert that he can dispense with them, them being symbols and dreams. And he may bolster his opinion by insisting that there is no scientific evidence of their truth, or he may even regret the loss of his convictions. But since we are dealing with invisible and unknowable things, for God is beyond human understanding and there is no means of proving immortality, why should we bother about evidence? Even if we did not know by reason our need for salt in our food, we should nonetheless profit from its use. We might argue that the use of salt is a mere illusion of taste or a superstition, but it would still contribute to our well-being. Why then should we deprive ourselves of views that would prove helpful in crises and would give a meaning to our existence? It's a very like empirical view rather than like a science-based view. Like it's like, Hey, this works. So who cares about the, like why it works, you know, or the mechanism by why it works. It's like, we know that this works. Totally. And there's, I would argue there's almost a better reason to believe that than the like convoluted scientific argument for something because if it if yeah. it's worked really well for solving a certain problem for thousands of years even if we don't understand why 
you know, it's, it's like a Chesterton's fence thing, right? Like we shouldn't just remove the fence because we don't know why it's there. Like it, yeah. it's clearly serving <laughs> some purpose. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it also, it kind of goes back to like a lot of the nutrition things, right? That we've talked about in past episodes where it's like, you know, maybe we didn't know why uh, at the time why like, oh, butter is better than like soybean oil or something, <laughs> right? But like, we, then we think we know why and then we're like, oh yeah, don't eat butter. It's bad for you eat soy, you know, eat soybean oil instead. And then, you know, after a few years, you're like, oh, wait, why is everyone screwed up? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's like how good of advice some of the old like kosher and halal laws actually are, right? It's like shellfish is kind of a a dangerous gamble in a lot of situations if you don't know the sourcing or where it came from. Same with pork, right? You get trichinosis and such. Yeah, Yeah, it's again, it goes back to like the empirical like the empirical thing. And it's like, if it works, it probably, there's a good reason to follow it. One, one thing in this, that's also kind of interesting. He didn't talk as much about it here, um, but I've seen in like different, some essays or maybe like secondary work, things that are talking about his work, not so much things that are directly quoted from him. He ties religion a lot to the same idea where like a lot of religious symbols that we might not understand directly are kind of doing the same thing for people from a psychological standpoint, like there's an empirical reason why people believe this thing rather than a, uh, like, Oh yeah, it's, this is, this is scientific fact that this, you know, this thing actually, this actually happened this way, or this myth actually, maybe it's serving some other empirical purpose that is, is benefiting people. And that's why they believe it. Totally. Well, and he talks a lot about a common theme that we've discussed, which is this search for, meaning in life and the need for rituals, initiation rites, major events, the things that are sorely lacking in a lot of modern Western societies. And he talks about how important the symbols are and like the dreams are to that whole uh, transformation, right? We, we've kind of removed a lot of these initiation rites or these rituals and with them, we've removed a lot of the like symbology mysticism from life that actually helps to give it meaning. Because I think one of these central points when he's talking about where he's saying, you know, we're dealing with invisible and unknowable things. And he mentions God, but you could also say this is like meaning of life type stuff, right? You can never really know the meaning of life or, you know, why you're here or if, if yeah. you're here for any meaningful reason in particular, you, you essentially have to come up with something unscientific and very like symbolic, right. In order to draw that sense of meaning from, and by both trying to like strip away anything that can't be proven by scientific experiment and by removing these religious rights, we've kind of like created this crisis of meaning that I think, uh, has sort of become like a, a tautology today, right? Like everybody knows it's a problem, but nobody, most people don't want to do anything about it or no, nothing seems to be being much done about it. It's been a problem since, was it Nietzsche who said God is dead, right? Or something? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like, it's kind of been, it's that whole thing kind of started around then and it's just, I don't think it's ever reversed. I don't know if it can reverse. I think like on a related note, like we as a mo- like I say we as in all of us uh, who are alive today, 
have kind of like the set of beliefs that we've all adopted are they like directly make us feel more in control of things that then necessarily, you know, we necessarily are. So even if you just stick to psychology, for, for example, like a lot of the popular psychology and self-help type stuff is about, you know, willpower. And like, if you just like think the right things, right. Like good, you know, good, like the secret type stuff, that's kind of like, it makes Mm -hmm. us feel like, Hey, we control a lot of like, you know, our positive thoughts will influence the universe. And like, you know, that whole set of beliefs there, there's that. And then there's also this sort of like, scientism i guess is probably the other way of putting it is that like oh yeah we can control all the things like we can control like we know we have perfect knowledge of everything um and we can control all of it and so all of it in my opinion just kind of ties to like we want to feel in control of the universe and not feel like there's things beyond our understanding or control and he kind of pulls it back to and there's this is a quote from the from the book where he says, many people mistakenly overestimate the role of willpower and think that nothing can happen to their minds that they do not decide and intend. But one must learn to discriminate carefully between intentional and unintentional contents of the mind. The former are derived from the ego personality. The latter, however, arise from a source that is not identical with the ego, but is its other side. And it's like, that side absolutely exists. Like, we we have wants and desires and dislikes and things that we hate that we don't if you ask me where those came from, I could, couldn't tell you uh, where those came from. You have ideas where you're just like, hey, that, that idea popped into my head. <laughs> like, how? Where did it come from? Like, how did that idea pop into your head? And it's like there is this other side that we don't directly yeah. control and think about. We just don't acknowledge it most of the time, except for when we're dreaming, which is kind of when it when it shines. Yeah, there's almost a... I think this goes hand in hand with the stripping away of God and religion and mysticism, right? There's a an almost desire to pretend that the other side doesn't exist and that we are one person, right? Like there is a Neil, uh, yeah. there is a Nat, when in reality, yes. there are like multiple conflicting desires and instincts and incentives going on in all of our heads at any one time. And everybody has had the experience of saying like, why did I do that? Or, you know, I, I think I want to do this thing, but then I behave differently in the situation where it matters. Right. And that's, that's sort of what, uh, Jung is getting at here where we do have this like, primary side and the other side. There there have been so many terms for this throughout history, right? Like going back to Plato and probably earlier, right? Of the like multi-sided mind. And instead of trying to deny it and trying to pretend that, oh no, if you just have enough like science or willpower or think hard enough, you could, this is sort of the problem with the rationalist community, right? Yeah. The rationalist community is like, oh, well, if we just like rationally analyze things, then we will be like perfect, you know, logical machines. And it's okay. Like one, that's ridiculous. And two is like a terrible way to be an interesting person. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it also just is kind of, kind of like, instead of grappling with this, you know, probably like one of the biggest psychological challenges that we all have to deal with in our lives, it's trying to avoid it and hide from it, which is, uh, is super, I think, counterproductive and probably makes it worse. Yeah, weird. weirdly, there is a rational argument, though, that kind of makes sense to the dreams thing. And he kind of even brings it up in the in the book, which is 
So I'll just read it from the book and then I'll, I'll say my opinion uh, on it. So if somebody with little experience and knowledge of dreams thinks that dreams are just chaotic occurrences without meaning, he is at liberty to do so. But if one assumes that they are normal events, which as a matter of fact they are, one is bound to consider that they are either causal, i.e. that there is a rational cause for their existence, or in a certain way, purposive or both. And it's like, though, at least how I interpreted that, right, is like almost a rational argument of if dreams exist and the symbolic way of thinking exists, it must have some sort of beneficial evolutionary purpose, right? That's why that's kind of how it, yeah. it came to be or why it exists, I guess, today. And if it didn't, it would we wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> like, I'm sure it uses some energy, right, to, to dream. And yeah, it wouldn't make sense for you to expend energy dreaming if there wasn't some purpose to it. It's a really good point, right? Like, because you're basically hallucinating and imagining right. insane, impossible things, which seems like it would be counterproductive to surviving in the wild or wherever else. So why would we have these ridiculous nighttime hallucinations? There, there has to be some value to it. And I've heard one argument that it's the, uh, it's like the waste product of your brain rejuvenating itself from the day. And I don't really like buy that. It seems, it seems, it seems like it's structured. It seems like it's it trying to, you know what I mean? Like if it was just a waste product, you might just see colors and like all sorts of stuff. Like, you know what? I, and why would you remember exactly. them if it's just yeah. a waste product too? You wouldn't need to remember that. There, there has to be a, a reason. Right. There has to be a reason that certain symbols routinely pop up across different people in like every yeah. society. Right. He, he has this great passage here that touches on what we're talking about where he says, the general function of dreams is to try to restore our psychological balance by producing dream material that reestablishes in a subtle way the total psychic equilibrium. This is what I call the complementary or compensatory role of dreams in our psychic makeup. It explains why people who have unrealistic ideas or too high an opinion of themselves or who make grandiose plans out of proportion to their real capacities have dreams of flying or falling. And then a few pages later, he says, many crises in our lives have long unconscious history. We move toward them step by step, unaware of the dangers that are accumulating. So the dreams actually help balance out some of what our like, more rational, egotistical mind might be doing during the day. It like, you know, tries to balance us a little bit, pull us back, you know, see the, the broader picture, see hidden risks, things like that. And I, I think that... He's. I'm, I'm going to tie another idea that he mentions later, where he basically says that people don't really dream anymore. Where is it? It's lined with the rabbi. Yeah. Uh, Christians often ask why God does not speak to them as he is believed to have done in former days. When I hear such questions, it always makes me think of the rabbi who was asked how it could be that God often showed himself to people in the olden days, while nowadays nobody ever sees him. The rabbi replied, nowadays, there is no longer anybody who can bow low enough. We are so captivated by and entangled in our subjective consciousness that we have forgotten the age old fact that God speaks chiefly through dreams and visions. And I think we've like lost direct contact or we've lost a lot of the contact with that part of our subconscious, which is why psychedelics are so popular and so effective because that makes complete sense. It, Yep. I, I've I've heard this point 
from a few people. I know like Sam Harris says a version of it where it's basically like if you meditate really dutifully for five to 10 years, do it like every day and practice and work really hard, you can get to the point where you can reestablish this like direct relationship with the subconscious and your dream state and like become more shamanic or you can take a really high dose of mushrooms today and get an immediate direct connection with it. Right. Like right. it, it saves a lot of time and effort <laughs> if you take the, the pharmaceutical path. So, you know, there, there might be an argument that if we reestablished more of this direct relationship with whatever you want to call it, right. Like God, the subconscious nature, there wouldn't be as much of a need for pharmaceutical facilitation of that connection. But that's hard. And, you know, this is America. We don't wait for things. We want them right. <laughs> now and fast. <laughs> We're willing yep. to pay for it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, it's, that, that makes, that actually makes complete sense for why psychedelics are so, are so popular. And I also think the, our day to day lives now are so noisy, I guess is like the word that I would use. Like there's so yeah. much on our conscious attention all the time. Right. Like, I mean, I think you had mentioned in maybe it was the last episode or a couple of the ones before just like going out for walks and like trying to not, you know, look at a screen and stuff and like it and looking at things in the distance. And like, it's a very different experience. and It's kind of uncomfortable. You know, like I like I yeah. never go for a walk like without my AirPods and like I'll have my phone in my pocket. Right. It's like it's like if I had to go for a walk, like no phone, no music, no podcast, no nothing, like it would be a weird experience. Like if you told me to go do that for an hour, I'd just be like, what am I supposed to do? Like while I'm walking. Um, yeah. And that's, and if you think about well, it, I, that probably is why ahead. we've lost touch. It's probably partially why we've lost touch with this yeah. subconscious. Cause it's like, there's so like, that's all stuff that our consciousness is paying attention to. Whereas in the past, let's say, you know, 500 years ago, for example, if you were going to go for a walk, there are no AirPods, no phone to take with you and no distractions, basically. And you're probably you, you would have thoughts come up that are from that subconscious and you would be able to pay attention to them. Yeah, I've started doing this recently where when I go on walks, I try to not listen to music or a podcast for at least some of it. And I end up doing my best writing while I'm walking. Oh, I like that. So it's it's kind of interesting. It's like the boredom and the lower stimulus, like these random ideas start bubbling up. And what I've kind of realized from it is I can I can create like a pretty good outline of an article with different like just little notes to myself to re-spark ideas. And I can like put that I can make it in Apple Notes while I'm walking. Yep. And then I can pretty easily just like word vomit that into an article later from that like initial structure that comes up on the walk. It's a, it's a very different style of writing, but it has worked extremely well for me. That's really interesting. Cause I used to get a lot of ideas on planes when I would not have any, like I would mm -hmm. not have any internet or whatever. It's just like no distractions planes or driving actually is another one. I used to use like voice notes a decent amount when I was driving and just like, to yeah. remind myself of things be like oh yeah what about that like it's like just things will pop into your head because it's kind of boring like what are you doing while you're driving not even like you know especially if you're the only one in the car there's just like no distractions you just kind of go into the zone after a while totally especially highway driving yeah, like you, not, maybe you, not you like need, local driving i've seen some version of this from like multiple very 
successful, it seems like investors in particular, like not so much builders, but like you see this a lot with investors where they say that the a lot of the their best ideas and their best decisions come from when they're like underemployed, right? Mm, it's like yeah. you want to be if you're if you're really busy and you're always working or always trying to like get something done, it's hard to have the space to like tie things together and like see the bigger picture. But if you take like a deliberately very slow kind of like force yourself into periods of boredom, then threads start connecting a little bit better and you can be more creative, which is this interesting challenge because we definitely have a, we definitely have a culture where that's like, you gotta like go, 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 go. You know, you gotta work harder to, uh, you know, because you got to get rich in three years before the world like melts. And, you know, there's no such thing as long term thinking anymore. Uh, <laughs> but then you've got all these uber successful people who are like, yeah, I mostly just like sit around and read books and like let myself get bored. And then I'll have like one good idea a month. And that's like made my whole career. And yeah. it's sort of a crazy thing to think about. In some ways, that kind of goes back to the control thing, right? Because when you're busy, busy, busy doing stuff all the time, you feel in control. It's like, yeah, I'm making progress. I'm doing things. I'm like hustling. Yeah. Right. But then it's like the people who sit back and are like, you know, I'm, if I have one good idea a month, you know, I'm going to be, that's going to be great. Like those people are trusting, like they're really trusting this process that it's going to, it's going to work. And they're not kind of leaning into that feeling of like, I control everything. Cause it does feel good to be like, what well, you, I don't know about feels good. It feels, you feel in control when you're always taking action and like busy all the time, you feel like, yeah, I'm making progress, but are you really making progress is the question. And are you even coming up with one good idea a month? Maybe, maybe not. It's just another one. Of, I mean, this goes back to like the topic at hand, right? You can know something intellectually and logically, but then you're more like animal instinct, your id, superego, whatever can just override that and act in a completely different fashion, right? Different from, what you know, and I like I've, I've talked about this a decent amount. In wow, there's a hummingbird right outside my window. Oh my god, he's so cute. <laughs> huh. Uh, sorry, I've I've never I've never even seen a hummingbird at our house before. But I was right outside the window. Flowers in here. It's so yeah, anyway, yeah, he was just like chilling <laughs> outside the window, looking in at me. But huh. Um, no, I I talk about this a lot. Like I, I use this analogy with my therapist too, where it's like there there's like the smart you and the like stupid monkey you. And so much of like, you know, call it self-improvement or whatever is about like creating a, a like sufficiently directional, but free enough environment for the monkey to thrive in. Right. Like Mm. you think, I think about it with alcohol, right. Where it's, like once you give the monkey a little bit of alcohol, there's a zero percent chance that he's gonna like stop there, right? But if you never yeah. give him some in the first place, it's a lot easier, right? Like, you know, like abstinence weight is so much easier than moderation. Or like I know that if I have Discord on my phone, then I'm gonna just be like in chat all the time and like completely cut off from everything around me. So I have to like not have it on the phone or else like I'm gonna, you know, lose control in that way. It's the flip side of what Jung is saying here, where it's like, we need to sort of like listen to that other side of us and what it's saying 
and not try to be like too scientific about everything. But then it's also like, okay, well, how do you, how do you also manage that? Because you don't want to let it just run rampant <laughs> or, or maybe, so, so I mean, I would, maybe I would actually say I guess for some people, right? Like, I would say he's saying something slightly different. I think he's saying we pretend like it doesn't exist or we ignore it, but then it shows up mm. in other ways, like in ways that then we, we can't control or influence at all. Like, you know, it just right. like, for example, to your point about alcohol is, a, is kind of a great one. Like if it's, I think the fact that you even acknowledge that there's the two parts, you know, there's like the monkey brain and the smart you, for example, like, the fact that you know that those two things and you're even acknowledging them, you probably are way ahead of the game. Whereas somebody who's not recognizing those two parts is just like, oh yeah, I feel like drinking. Like I just want to drink. And it's like, you're not really recognizing where yeah, that yeah. impulse is coming from. So you can't control it because you don't even know, like you think that's you, like you think that's you saying you want to drink and you just follow it, which it is you. It's another yeah, I, part of you, but you don't have like, Right, right. Ability to distinguish it. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how many people think in that way, right? Of like the multi part mind versus the like solo persona. Like, I'd be curious. That'd be like a good Twitter poll if you could construct it in a good way. Although I I feel like the results I would get would be pretty biased, right? I'm just, (laughs) you know, like, is that an obvious tool? Do a lot of people think that way? Do, am I like a weirdo? You know, sometimes when I talk about it, I feel like, am I like, schizophrenic <laughs> like is, is this like a totally weird way to think about your brain or have i just like read too many of these books i don't know um it, i do find uh, it very helpful though you know because it's it's like personifying it, it you know it's it's not that it's not that you are a failure or that you are coming up short in some way you just have this other part of your brain that you have to constantly struggle against and figure out how to develop a good relationship with. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. To do the shadow work. Yeah. I mean, but, and I guess there's like different names we can use for all this, but like the monkey thing is an interesting one. Cause it's like, that's your kind of instinctual or like, you know, that's the part of you that just wants to eat donuts all day. too, <laughs> Right. Like, cause it's yeah, yeah. fatty and sugary <laughs> and tastes good. So <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just very like get that's in fights on Twitter all day. Yes, that too. Yep, somebody said something wrong somewhere <laughs> in the world, so I have to go correct it. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, just one last thing on that is like to your point on that is mm-hmm. like I do wonder, like, does reading these books make you think more in that way, or is it like? would you have thought in this way, I guess, without reading the books? Like, would you have recognized that there's these multiple selves or are almost, are you like applying this like framework to your, how your brain works because someone else put that in your brain too? You know I, what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, I think I def I definitely got it from reading these books. And the, the one that first turned me on to it was called, it was one of the Chip and Dan Heath books switch yeah so chip and dan heath have this book switch uh how to change things when change is hard and they use the analogy or they describe it as it's funny because now there's a new meaning of the term elephant in the brain but they describe that in your brain there's like an elephant and there's the rider and the elephant is like the subconscious 
shadow that like just wants to you know trample things and eat whatever uh food is in front of it and like run around crazy and then you've got like the the rational like rider mind that's like trying to control and direct it but like if the elephant wants to go somewhere it's going to go somewhere like you've only got so much control over it um Mm. and i I found that to be like a super helpful analogy right because then the and then the book is all about like how do you create a good environment for the elephant to like do what you want it to do but that it's it's actually really similar to plato's analogy of the of the charioteer because he describes the mind as like there's the logical reasoning person in the chariot and then the two horses of like spiritedness and desire. And if they want to go somewhere, they're going to go there, but you can try to like guide them as best you can. Yeah. Have you, uh, I'm sure it goes even older than him too. Yeah. I was trying to find, as you were talking, I was trying to find this article, which I read a while. It was like a series of articles actually, which I read a while back and I'm failing to find it. But it was about, have you ever heard this theory that like consciousness, like the way we think about consciousness, like how we feel that we're conscious is a way newer phenomenon than like previously thought like that. It might only be like a couple thousand years old, not like, or even, a, you know, a few thousand no. years old, maybe not a couple thousand, but not, it's not like millions and millions that of years old. That sounds pretty interesting though. Yeah. It's like, it's basically I could see the that. idea of having a voice in your head, right. Or being able to like it's kind of like they're tying it to language, right? It's like pre-language. How would that have worked? And the article is actually not the original work. Like the series of articles is basically a summary of a book. And I think it's, I think the author of the book is Marcia Iliad. Yeah. And it's basically that like consciousness is a newer, way newer phenomenon than we feel that it is. I'm going to try to find the article afterwards and put it in the show notes, but yeah, it's. I yeah. remember like the series was super, super interesting, and it was written. I think it was written by one of the elephant in the brain guys, like Robin Hanson or Kevin Simler, yeah, or yes. Chip and Dan Heath. Yes, no, 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 Robin, Robin Hanson or uh, Kevin Simler. It sounds like something um, Robin Hanson would have written. Yeah, 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 and it was basically like he'd read this book and was like, I don't know if this is right or not, but it's fascinating to think about. <laughs> I mean, he ties it to like la- like the language development of language. It's like we wouldn't have had this voice in our head pre, you know, uh, structured languages. And it's like if you don't have that voice in your head, then do you have like what is what is consciousness uh, before that? Like, what does that look like? Right. And it was purely symbolic, basically. Right, and right. then the tie there was like a tie back to like sim- the symbolic way of thinking is more animalistic than the you know language way of thinking like animals may think in symbols as well they probably do actually if you think about it probably yeah like they definitely have a representation for stuff in their head yeah i mean have you seen that stuff about how crows can remember faces and they can tell each other about people like that's crazy because i (laughs) mean in order for that to be possible they must have yeah like they would have to have some mental representation of what a person looks like in order to be able to communicate that to other crows. Yeah. And then a way to communicate that. So they have a representation and then a way exactly. to tell other crows about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there, there's some sort of crow language going on in their heads, which is just wild yeah. to think about. And then there's, there's stuff about like elephants where there's something I'd seen where like the elder, elder elephants kind of remember 
let's say you're there's the, the you're going through a drought right now like they would remember the last time there was mm-hmm. a drought where they went to go get water in that in that case they oh, might have yeah. been 50 years ago and they could go find it right, and they still right. know where it is like that's the crazy thing yeah and then they'll like leave yeah el- elephants are another crazy one yeah elephants dolphins are another one there's that a famous experiment about like trying to get dolphins to speak english using lsd did you ever hear about this Oh, what? I don't think I've read. I, I've, I've, I've uh, heard a little bit it, about this. I haven't read it, though. This is amazing. There was like, I think it was in the 70s. Is, uh, is this some CIA stuff? It wasn't even CIA stuff. I think it was at a university. I want to say it was at like Harvard or Princeton or whatever. It was like a legit university, I think, that was doing this. But they were trying to basically teach dolphins hmm. how to speak. And one of the dolphins like fell in love with one of the trainers and like, it, it, that was like a whole thing. Like it got messy. <laughs> the dolphin, like tra- like one of the female trainers, basically fell in love with one of the female trainers. The dolphin fell in love with one of the human female trainers and like <laughs> would try to like uh, rape her and all sorts of stuff. It was just like all sorts of things going on in this experiment. Also, the dolphin was drugged up the whole Jeez. time with, on LSD, so who knows what was going on in the dolphin's head. It's also interesting that LSD works on dolphins. I mean, yes, exactly. LSD is a weird drug. We don't really know how it works. Oh, we don't? We don't fully understand it? I don't think so. I yeah, think it's I one of those like happy accident type drugs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The story for LSD wasn't that where the guy was like biking home from the lab and started like seeing a bunch of stuff? Yeah. And was like, wait, this is weird. Yeah, yeah. He was just like <laughs> mixing shit together in the lab. And then, and I think he took like what would be considered a super heroic dose and then started biking home was like, Oh, something's not right here. I just sent you the link to this dolphin LSD thing. Cool. It was a NASA experiment. Actually, NASA I was wrong. Who did it? Yeah. I, man, we got to bring back the seventies era of science. <laughs> yeah. Just try anything. Like, yeah. Just mind control. Uh, like, dolphin consciousness you know like <laughs> science today is so boring by comparison <laughs> yeah they actually that's true that's a really good point they were trying new stuff for sure yeah i wonder why like i wonder what was what made it like what made that era more like accepting because it seems like a lot of these studies were like funded by legit you know institutions like it's not like they were well they didn't really in, have the yeah. academic review board back then right like oh, i don't think didn't. there were really yeah, rules i didn't know that they, or they, they didn't have if that. they had it it wasn't nearly as strict as it is today i mean that's that's why you were able to have like the stanley milgram experiments and stanford prison experiment and like all these things that uh well one haven't reproduced but also two seem just like hilariously Wrong. cruel to yeah yeah <laughs> yeah what about um yeah, I was gonna say today, like when there's there is a lot of psychedelic research, for example, today, like how is that being? Because I don't know much about it. Like, how is it being funded and done today? Because it's still federally, at least as far as I know, federally like illegal. Are there are there universities just doing it anyway? Is it being done in other countries? Like, yeah, how are those advances? Because I, I feel like there has been a lot a lot done recently on psychedelics. I mean, I think it is legal. I think it is legal for pharmaceutical use now, like for experiments and things. Uh, I know psilocybin and ketamine definitely are. And I think most of it's funded by private organizations like MAPS. 
and they've just been able to raise huge amounts of money to fund that research. But MAPS also has like a pharmaceutical arm or like they're like they they produce some of the pharmaceuticals for it. So they must have some involvement in in that end of it because um, that's sort of the uh, the tagline to tell somebody now that you've got some some high quality goods. It's like, oh, well, this is like MAPS grade uh, MDMA <laughs> or uh, ketamine or psilocybin, right? So like, I don't know if they're actually making it or if they just have relationships with labs now. And the labs yeah. are a little, little leaky. So they're almost like a badge. But they're almost like a badge of uh, quality. Badge of quality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah interesting. Yeah, because I feel like there is still isn't the... I mean, there's definitely more mainstream acceptance of that, but there aren't the like wild experiment type stuff going on in it that there was in the 70s. Exactly. Like, what would happen exactly. if you gave an ant colony psilocybin? Like, what would, you know, what would they, what would they do? <laughs> Oh man, that would be a fun experiment. <laughs> Somebody has to have well, done that. Build. I wonder if they would like uh you've seen that spider experiment, right? Where they gave spiders yeah. a bunch of different drugs to see what it did to yeah. their webs. That's, That's a pretty cool such one. A cool one. Yep. Spiders on yeah. drugs. We gotta put this in the show notes. If you have not seen this, it is super <laughs> cool. Where it's like there's like the normal one, there's like the marijuana one, there's the caffeine one, right? That's the thing you're talking about? Yeah, the caffeine one's kind of crazy. There's like a... Yeah. I think there is an LSD one, too. That's also yeah, wild if LSD works Marijuana, benzodrine, caffeine. Okay, I'm not seeing an LSD one. Oh, no, there the is marijuana an LSD one. one is interesting. Yeah. Oh, you found the LSD one? Uh-huh. The marijuana one's not that bad compared to the That's others. what I was going to say. The marijuana one is surprisingly close to the normal one. Yeah, it's, it's like he's just a little horrible. lazier, which, the yeah, caffeine one, one is, is awful. Yeah. <laughs> which is a really interesting, uh, really interesting thought experiment. It's like, well, maybe caffeine makes us feel like we're doing a lot of activity, but it's all just like not structured. Yeah, and not really like disjointed. <laughs> and Yeah. Which, to be fair, is kind of how I feel when I've had too much caffeine, right? Like, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll finish a period and I'll think you know oh I was moving really quickly but I wasn't I didn't really go anywhere right yeah like I felt really busy but what did I actually get done during that period I can't point to as much um, but it felt really good and fast doing it in the moment yeah yeah it's also interesting exactly. like um, weirdly like people who like. Um, I, I think you, you follow. I'm sure you follow or you've seen him on uh, on Twitter's Visa. Yeah, VisaCon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a cool. Like I don't know him. Yeah, he's at all. great. I just like followed him for a long time, and he's an awesome follow. Like I saw, like recently he quit smoking, like maybe three months ago, and he had a interesting thread on it. And yesterday, I think, and um, and I'll, we'll, we'll try to put that in the notes as well. Like he was talking about some of the benefits, like physical benefits that he's noticed. Like he's not sniffling and like coughing randomly uh, anymore, but like mm. some of the downsides he's noticed is he said he for sure feels thirty uh, percent stupider, like for sure. Like he said, I can't think as quickly. He said my writing is worse. Like everything is worse that requires his brain. Like he's like everything is not as sharp. Huh. And he said maybe that goes away after a period of time. Maybe that'll come back. Maybe it won't. But he's like that is definitely a downside that he's noticed to quitting. And so it's interesting, right? Like I feel like caffeine makes you feel yeah. smarter, 
I don't know if you actually feel, you know, you're actually smarter with caffeine, but I have heard from multiple people on the tobacco front, like people feel smarter on they, and maybe they are, maybe they are. And I don't, maybe it's just, uh, if you feel smarter or you are actually smarter, but I've heard a very similar thing with tobacco. So I wonder about a spider on tobacco, like what, or nicotine, what would that be? So I had a tweet a while ago where I was, you know, this is like a a funny consequence of advertising, but I started getting all these TikTok ads for ADHD prescriptions over the internet, Mm. right? And it's kind of like the marijuana prescriptions in California, right? You, You Zoom with a doctor and you say, oh, I have back pain. And they go, oh, well, okay. It seems like you really need some marijuana. Like, all right, you have a prescription. Uh, it so seems like, like oh, you have trouble focusing. Ritalin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd be like, oh, I can't get work done. <laughs> My emails are hard. Um, and, uh, and they'll just write you a script. So, and I was like, you know, should I just try this? Like, I'm kind of curious what it would be like if I were on like ADHD meds for a week or two. Because I'm definitely like on the more like manic worky spectrum. Uh, yeah. So it, it could be beneficial. It could be, you know, bad too. Cause I think it also has the consequence of kind of turning you into a, a robot who will just churn through stuff uh, without questioning it. And I had a number of people uh, DM me or respond publicly saying like, uh, saying you should try nicotine instead because it has a similar effect, but is not like necessarily as intense or it might even be like less habit forming, especially if you do it with a like controlled dosing using a patch or a gum versus that's smoking. what I was about to say. Cause like, that's what I was about to say that like, yeah, most of the negative effects of nicotine are actually from the smoking part, not from the nicotine. Yeah. Itself. It's like, not there nicotine. Are, there itself. Has been a lot of nicotine. Studies. Yeah. There, there've been a lot of studies on nicotine by like, like just nicotine. And it's, you know, I mean, it's not great, but it's not like nearly as bad as what you would imagine, like what, what we picture the effects of nicotine are. It's nothing like that. Yeah. When I dug into it a bit, it seemed like nicotine was pretty comparable to caffeine and yeah, was like too. arguably less bad than THC, which is not what you expect, right? Because you're like, yeah. oh, no, like weed is a vitamin, right? Like it's good for you. It should be in the water. Um <laughs> But it's like THC isn't riskless, right? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I yeah, mean, for one, it definitely seems to have some impact on testosterone, which is not great. And nicotine is, but nicotine's kind of like uh, opium, where it's it's very addictive, but is not super harmful. Uh, that was the other thing that was really crazy when I was doing some research on that. If you get like super pure opium or super pure heroin, it's not actually that harmful of a chemical. You can overdose hmm. very quickly. And, you know, not wake up, but kind of like how most of the harm from smoking is like the other stuff. It's the tobacco it's the delivery and mechanism. And yeah, it's the delivery it's mechanism. It's the delivery mechanism. It. Yeah, exactly. Which I thought was pretty surprising. I never knew that like about there, there, there's, there's basically an argument to be made. Yeah, there's an argument to be made that like pure opium or pure heroin is like less harmful than alcohol, uh, hmm. which is like absurd and completely counter to, you know, what you would expect. What, what you're um, taught as well. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah. the nicotine is just point, awful. like, <laughs> yeah, in so many ways. I mean, I haven't completely uh, quit drinking, but I definitely drink less than I than I used to, for sure. Um, the point on nicotine is, like, you totally then see the value of something like vaping, like trying to come up with a better delivery mechanism for people, right? It's like, 
that is actually probably yeah. the number one way to reduce the harm of it. It's like we can get all the, you know, if the people who smoke cigarettes can switch to vaping, like, okay, the negative effects of what they're doing goes down by so much. It's like, yeah, sure. It'd be great to get them all to quit. Probably that's not going to happen. So it's like, can we convince people to use a better delivery mechanism? But it's very interesting, the like viewpoint but that on seems that like vaping being, might be worse. <laughs> well, that goes back to like what we're talking about, like the scientism, right? It's like yeah. maybe that has, yeah, yeah. although that is also another interesting like thing, but like I, I haven't looked into it that much because I don't, I mean, I don't vape or anything, but like from what I've seen, a lot of the harms of vaping are when people start to like sub out the cartridges for like homemade cartridges and then like the liquid leaks and like getting liquid mm, in your lungs dial is up not the a heat. good yeah 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 like getting liquid in your lungs is not or or you um mod the vape for thc not for nicotine like you buy it you buy like a jewel and then you try to like put in a thc cartridge or something in there which requires you to also mess with like the heat and like and some other stuff so apparently that like leads to fluid in your lungs which is terrible for you that's definitely not what you want yeah (laughs) so i mean it almost seems like the gum or like patches or whatever are safer alternative. I mean, you already have those safer alternatives than, than smoking, but totally. Um, yeah. Anyway, none of this is medical advice, by the way, this is all just like us, uh, no. bullshitting. So, <laughs> uh, what, what was the episode? What was the episode about? <laughs> what? Yeah. What were we talking about? Well, no, that I was, I was actually, I was actually just about to tie this in because he does talk about drugs in the book. I just have to find it. While you're looking for that, there is one point on here that was, I thought, super interesting. It was, remember he's talking about, like, the tribe where only the chief dreamed and, like, people would deny that they even yeah. dreamed? That was so interesting. It's such a funny idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was basically a section in the book where, uh, I guess, they talked to, like, these tribe uh, tribesmen and talked to them about dreams. And, like, in that tribe, it was only acceptable for the chief to dream to have dreams. Not like regular people. So the regular people just deny that they ever had dreams ever, which is just yeah. amazing. <laughs> okay. So I can't find the exact alcohol section, but he does talk about sort of like, how do we, he, he says that we have this shadow self, this other side that makes us uncomfortable. And so one of the responses is to try to numb it. And if you if you think about what most popular drugs do, like especially alcohol and marijuana, and and I guess to some extent caffeine, if it's making you sleep less, like you really don't dream anymore. Your dreams kind of go away, and so you're kind of like numbing that side of your brain out. And he talks about uh, sort of the the solution to that, where he serves. It's exactly the same in the initial crisis in the life of an individual. One is seeking something that is impossible to find or about which nothing is known. In such moments, all well-meant, sensible advice is completely useless. Advice that urges one to try to be responsible, to take a holiday, not to work so hard or to work harder, to have more or less human contact or to take up a hobby. None of that helps or at best only rarely. There's only one thing that seems to work, and that is to turn directly toward the approaching darkness without prejudice and totally naively, and to try to find out what its secret aim is and what it wants from you. And then a little bit earlier, 
he's talking about kind of like handling this conflict and what we were talking about before about recognizing this this dual sense of self. He says, there's a conflict in our lives between adventure and discipline or evil and virtue or freedom and security. But these are only phrases we use to describe an ambivalence that troubles us and to which we never seem able to find an answer. There is an answer. There is a meeting point between containment and liberation, and we can find it in the rites of initiation that I have been discussing. They can make it possible for individuals or whole groups of people to unite the opposing forces within themselves and achieve an equilibrium in their lives. But the rites do not offer this opportunity invariably or automatically. They relate to particular phases in the life of an individual or of a group, and unless they are properly understood and translated into a new way of life, the moment can pass. Initiation is essentially a process that begins with a rite of submission, followed by a period of containment, and then by a further rite of liberation. In this way, every individual can reconcile the conflicting elements of his personality. He can strike a balance that makes him truly human and truly the master of himself. So it really is, it seems, his focus to like figure out how you incorporate the shadow, right? How do you incorporate the other side and like learn to live with it and struggle with it in a like positive long-term way. And a lot of the panaceas that we might use outside of this type of, you know, struggle and analysis are more about trying to silence it and hide from it, but that's not a long-term solution. Yeah. And it's also like, uh, I wonder how many, uh, so I, I don't know if this, there's numbers on this or not. Maybe you've seen them or maybe we can find them. Like it just seems in the popular conscious uh, consciousness, like therapy seems a lot more acceptable now. And I wonder if that mm-hmm. is, I w- so it's hard to know, is it more popular now than it was before? Or is it just more acceptable to talk about is I guess where I'm, where I'm going with this. And I, I think it's way the, more popular yeah. now. Okay. Yeah. You know, where I was going with this is like, that may be another way that people are trying to like understand their, their own minds and, and how it works and stuff. Um, on the other hand, there is also this idea of like people, a lot of times people do it without really doing it, like leaning all the way in kind of thing. It's like, Oh, I'm in, I'm doing therapy, but like, you're not really doing it. I don't know. I like, it's hard to say, is it actually more popular or more and more people are interested in this and exploring this stuff and themselves or is it just like more acceptable to talk about? It's hard to hard to say. I feel that it is more popular than it was, but I don't have any numbers to back that up. I think it's definitely more popular, but I also like I'm not 100% sure if that's a good thing or not because I think there are like a couple sides to it, right? Where on the one hand, if you're using it to you know, create a sounding board to help you like work through some persistent challenge in your life that you might not have like the full tool set to handle on your own. And then you can like accomplish that and move on. Then it's good. But I also feel like there's this other side of it where people use it as a crutch to avoid like doing the harder things that they often know they need to do. And it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like parenting, Right. Like, I feel like successful parenting is raising a kid who, like, doesn't need your approval or, like, need your support and acceptance on things. Like, they have a very strong internal locus of self-worth and control and everything. 
but you know that conversely that might mean that your child is like less close to you right is like more independent is more off on their own and so you like you don't want on some level you don't want that because then you might not like get to know as much about them or spend as much time with them or see them as much it's kind of like with therapy right where some of the incentives aren't aligned because i think a successful therapist would like get their client off their books as quickly as possible in some ways right yeah but the incentive is to keep them on the books as long as possible because you got to get that recurring revenue. So it's, it's kind of a challenge. Yeah. There's a lot of in that industry and, you know, it definitely varies a lot. Yeah. Yeah. This is medicine too, right? That's what I was going to say. It's like, like medicine's the same you way. Make right? A lot you less money as a doctor if you do preventative care. Yeah. I was going to say it's your successful drug would be one that cures something and you never need that drug again. Or successful intervention is one that yeah. cures you permanently. But the most profitable one is the recurring revenue stream. So you die. Yeah, exactly. Like, Got to get everybody on their, <laughs> uh, their monthly booster subscription. Right. So for <laughs> yep. <laughs> get the punch card. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. One's free. <laughs> get, get 10, get 10 boosters and your 11th one is free. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) that's a different episode um but no but you're right though you're 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 right though the the the, like parent thing is a interesting one too because that's a common uh mythological theme as well the devouring mother i think peterson has talked about that in the past uh, a lot where Mm, it's like yeah where it's like the mother like loves the children and i think fathers could also fall into this just that the the symbolic I guess the way that this is represented is typically a, a, a female, but it's like they love the child so much that they just basically stifle them from ever leaving. But that, that also makes them yeah. unhappy because then, you know, to be a, to your point about being a successful parent, like you want the child to be independent and have a uh, centered uh, self-worth and not have that externalized to you that you're providing all their self-worth. Right. So, yeah, yeah, my, my mom tough. always had a line she used for this that I think is really good where she would always say they're just passing through. Right. Mm. Like it's, uh, the, their, their time being super close, you know, to their parents in the home or whatever is a a stage of life. It's not like a permanent thing. And it's almost like that's part of the challenge. I think as a parent too, to have to like, to try to keep that in mind, uh, of like, Oh, okay. You know, like, this this is a phase of life, and I can't like cling on to that forever. Can't hold on to that. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that must be. I mean, obviously, I'm not in that position, but like now that you know you are actually a parent, like you probably have even more respect for how your mom was able to remember that. I mean, obviously, your you know your child is very young, so it's not an issue yet, but. I, you know, it's, you probably have a different perspective on it. Like I'm thinking about it intellectually. Like it's, for me, it's hypothetical at this point. Um, and I'm like, wow, that must've been yeah, so yeah. difficult for your mom to actually internalize that. Right. And feel that way. But it must be, you know, a whole nother level for I you. Think she's kind of wired that way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I think I'm kind of wired that way too. So I, I think yeah. I empathize the better. Um, but yeah. I, I was going to say another version where that, or another way that comes up is like, I, I think this might, this is probably kind of a partial problem of the nuclear family, which is just such a ridiculous idea. And Cosette and I struggled with this a bit in the beginning where it was like, we, we feel like bad parents if we're not spending like the entire day with our daughter. But 
that's probably actually like not something that ever really happened in history, except for, yeah. you know, during this concept of the nuclear family where like one person works and one person like stays home and does all of the child rearing and like house stuff themselves. It's like, that's kind of an insane idea, right? Because I mean, one kids are like boring most of the time. <laughs> like if you had to spend 12 hours a day, like just with the one or two kids, like you would naturally go insane. And I feel like with the more normal communal living, uh, and I've heard this from my friends who have a lot of siblings, right? It's like you would never be like watching one family member for 12 hours a day. I'd be like, oh, you know, watch your brother for 30 minutes. And like, okay, now mom is going to like watch everyone for a couple hours. And like, oh, okay, now we're like taking care of each other again. And like, okay, grandpa's here. And like, he's watching them for a bit, right? Like, you know, growing up, you would have a bunch of different people watching you at different times. It wouldn't be like you just have your mom or dad watching you all day. Um, And the, the more like, constant flow of caretakers i feel like that actually makes a lot such more a good sense point. that's such a good point actually my so my dad was the youngest of four children and like his oldest brother was you know like 12 years older than him so he actually almost thinks of his oldest brother as like his dad in some ways like not his dad but like his yeah. male role model not his own Second, actual yeah. father like he didn't really spend that much time with his actual parents like it's very interesting. It's like you probably as a kid too, like you want to hang out with people who are, you know, you'd probably be more interested in hanging out with your siblings than with, you know, your parents anyway, like they're cooler, right in your mind. And so it's interesting that like, yeah, he grew up that way. And then my mom, both her parents worked and stuff. So she was always just being taken care of by random, you know, it'd be like neighbors or like uh, other family members or just taking care of herself. And she has two younger siblings. So then she'd end up taking care of them. It's like, yeah, you're right. It's very, very different from the like nuclear family, like parents always being with their children idea. It's completely different, yeah. actually. And I, I'm, More the I'm model. seeing a, f- yeah, I, I feel like I'm seeing a fairly strong pushback against that nuclear family idea in our like demographic, in our age group, and in our community yeah, here same. in Austin. So I'm curious how that's going to manifest itself in practice over the next five to ten years. It, like, you know, one thing I disagreed it, with in you our on friend five years like ago, everybody's suddenly having kids. So yeah, I was going to say one thing I disagreed with out. you. I, I disagreed with you on something four years ago, five years ago on the podcast, and you might not even remember this, but I distinctly remember this because now I completely agree with you. Where we were talking about the future of school, and you were like, "Oh, I think it's going to mm. be like homeschooled, but with like groups of people in your community, not like you know just you teaching your kid." I don't remember which episode this was on. Somebody who's listened to all of them can tell us, but um, it was on one of the episodes where you said that. And I was like, no, you know, I don't think that's like, that doesn't make any sense. And like, now I completely agree with you that like, if you know, that, that is something that I would hope to be able to do, you know, for my children is like, I'd much rather have them go to school in that type of environment than like a public school or even a private school. I think that makes, it just makes yeah, so much sense. That's another weird thing that's, it's almost become like a tautology now where it's like, Oh yeah, obviously that's what I want <laughs> my kids to yeah. do. I, I don't know anybody funny, like, in our demographic that ago, I've talked to recently. Who's like, mm-hmm. I was just gonna say four or five years ago, I completely disagreed with you on that point, And I've come a hundred percent the opposite direction where it's like, obviously that's what I want. You know, it's like not even a question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, it just ties into the general, like 
you know, th- this is another good theme for our crypto libertarian whatever series. It's like the the general faith in government institutions is so low that I, I feel like for a lot of people in our generation, they're almost like jokes, right? They're like these silly old companies that can like barely function. And it's like, there's 0% chance that I'm going to let <laughs> a company run like that, educate my child if I have the option not to. All right. Yeah. And I think institutions in general are probably at an all time low, or at least in our lifetime, an all time low in terms of trust, not just government. I would even say like even private schools, like I don't have a ton of faith in a private school being able to do this properly. I have, I have more cause they at least have a stronger financial incentive because it's like if they if they start doing a bad job, they don't get more funding, right? Like, right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's certainly a spectrum. Like it's not like those are equal. Like they're further on like the I trust you spectrum, but they're still not too good. Like I would certainly trust like if it was like a community of our friends. Yeah, I would be more open. I'd be more yeah. trusting of that. Yes. That's what I was going to say. I think there's this much more common sentiment now of like. Uh, if we get like 10 to 20 of our friends together with like a small pool of capital, we can probably build a better school system for our kids, right? Like, yeah. you know, we can find some really good teachers to hire. Or we can like work together on a curriculum and it's probably going to be like head and shoulders above what public school can do. And I think there's this like general assumption of ability to do a better version than the legacy systems that's sort of probably like kind of goes with the massive access to information that we have and like greater ability for, you know, entrepreneurial allocation and collection of resources where we, we have that confidence now for better or worse. Like it would have been way harder to do something like that 30, 40 years ago before the internet, but now it feels way more approachable. Yeah. And I think like there's nothing wrong with that. Like I think there's the only way, things have ever gotten better is people saying like, Hey, we have the tools to do a better job than this has been done before. And like, let's try it. Right. Like, like there's nothing wrong with doing it. I yeah. I mean, there is a lot of backlash to this idea too. Like I no, think if you would not. say this in a mainstream, yeah. In a mainstream context, I don't know uh, how many out of like a hundred people, how many of them would not like you for suggesting this, but you know, I don't, I don't know. I just, I could definitely imagine they're being pushed back against this too. Like, and I could see the headline already of like the New York Times article of, uh, you know, uh, rich tech people form their own siloed school or something, teaching extremist ideology to children. And it would be the that's <laughs> it'd be the best marketing we could ask for. We would have applications yep. <laughs> for yeah, years. It would be great. <laughs> that's, dude, I, I feel like that's another thing that's changing. I feel like. I feel like people care a lot less about upsetting people now or yeah. like maybe I'm just getting more jaded, but I, I, I even feel this a little bit with like podcasting with Twitter, with articles, right? Like there's definitely a period where it was like, Oh, like we don't want to talk about this thing. Cause like it might upset people and you know, it's like not worth it to touch those third rails. And I think that what happened is like everything became a third rail and there's like nothing in the Overton window. And so now everyone's like, eh, fuck it. We're just going to talk about everything. Right. Like, it it doesn't like, okay. Everything that you say is fun of everybody on Twitter. No, it's like, you make fun of of everything. (laughs) Have you been, have you been reading, uh, have you been reading revolt of the public yet? I just started it. I just started it. 
Yeah. One one of the themes in there is basically that like as these old institutions decay and we realize like how broken a lot of our like old media institutions and our politicians and all these things are that our culture will develop sort of a general nihilism towards everything where it's like, eh, nothing matters. Like it's all stupid. You know, we can just like laugh as the Titanic sinks and I'm reading it. And I'm like, ah, this is like me to a T like maybe I should <laughs> dial this in a little bit. <laughs> we just need to wait like five or 10 years. Then we can all get into politics. We just need the like McConnell Pelosi, demo to like age out of office a bit and then then it'll be our time to strike or yeah your time i'm i'm good i'll, I'll help you i'll you'll definitely get my vote but, <laughs> but yeah good. you wouldn't i don't know it doesn't <laughs> sound very fun it just doesn't sound like a good day-to-day i mean it depends though i think maybe also no. i'm con- convoluting it with like or i'm like it's all mixed up with like these lizard people that are currently in power <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like I don't want to be like one of them. See, I think I think that's what's going to you know? change. Yeah. Like, it's not fun. I think that I think we're already seeing this, where it's like the people that we seem to respect the most are the ones who act like real humans, right? Yeah. Like, I I, I don't agree with all of his policies, but I got to respect like Bernie Sanders because he's like real. You know, like he yeah. clearly like truly embodies and believes a lot of this stuff. And actually, like a good measure might be a politician's willingness to go on a three to four hour long podcast. Right. Yes, Cause like 100%. Bernie can go on Rogan and he can talk about this stuff at like really in depth. It's not just sound bites. Like he clearly thinks about it a lot and cares about it a lot. Like I can't imagine like Biden or Warren on a three hour podcast, like trying to explain some of these sound bitey things that they tweet out. <laughs> That's true. That's such a good point. Yeah, I could. Maybe I'm being unfair, though, either. right? Yeah, that, that's a good filter. I mean, I'm biased also with this one because we talked to him on this show. But like a- Andrew Yang is pretty. Yeah, like, he's he's pretty real, too, even though, again, I don't agree with 100 percent of his stuff. And um, but we talked to him and he was very normal. Like he's just like in his car talking to us <laughs> on the episode. If you guys haven't listened to that major Dude, he, episode, just check that out. Yeah, it was it was a fun one. He got he got a little bit uh, he got a little bit politician pilled after he talked to us. We like yeah, he caught him early he, he, when he didn't get his training. He had not gotten his training yet. Yeah, when, yeah. <laughs> uh, when we talked to him, <laughs> didn't he like drop a couple f bombs too? Did he drop? Yeah, he was he was really funny. Uh, and then during the election, he would talk sometimes and I'd be like, "Man, just like lighten up a little bit. Like, stop trying to be a politician. Like, you're not. That's why we like you." Yeah. But I think you're right. Those are the kinds of people that like we do respect. Uh, yeah, I guess if it was full of people like that, it might be more fun because that's also the people you'd be talking to every day. You'd be interacting with those types of people every day. So it'd be more uh, acceptable. Right now, when I think about it, it's like I'd have to go talk to these other like these like, I don't know, these amoral like stooges for, <laughs> for all day. And that's what I do. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't sound does not sound fun. And then the rest of my time, I'd be fundraising from like companies that i really don't want to be fundraising from or like groups i don't want to be fundraising from and having to agree to do shit for them that like it just doesn't seem like a fun life but maybe yeah maybe that'll maybe we'll, I don't see, know. we'll see where we are in 10 years maybe we'll be i'm, I'm hopeful we can be cautiously optimistic for the city. 
We'll be politicians for the city state, like different city city states. You can do like Austin. Yeah, there we go. Maybe I'll do like yeah. <laughs> I'll do something else. But, Austin, uh, Austin City yeah. Council. Austin City Council is like a sneaky, powerful position to get into because, uh, like the mayor doesn't really have much power in Austin. They're just one of the eleven seats on city council. And so if you get one of the other 11 seats, you basically have as much power as the mayor, but nobody like knows who you are and you only have to work like one or two days a week or a month. So if you can like get one of those, you can have a pretty big impact uh, without, you know, having to spend all day kissing babies and getting <laughs> checks from oil companies. Yeah. What a, what a tangent, by the way, this is this past like yeah. minutes. <laughs> it's just been like <laughs> completely off the book. Um, we need a deal. <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know where we were in the book, but I mean, we got through all the like actual Jung stuff. But the next chapters were his students yeah. and his like affiliates. So uh, we at least got through chapter one, <laughs> which is the Jung chapter. Okay, there, there's there's one there's one last idea that I just want to throw out there because I find this idea very helpful, and maybe other people will as well. And I'm just going to read the quotation because I think people will grok it from that. He says, when an individual makes an attempt to see his shadow, he becomes aware of and often ashamed of those qualities and impulses he denies in himself, but can plainly see in other people, such things as egotism, mental laziness and sloppiness, unreal fantasies, schemes and plots, carelessness and cowardice, inordinate love of money and possessions. In short, all the little sins about which he might previously have told himself that doesn't matter. Nobody will notice it. And in any case, other people do it too. If you feel an overwhelming rage coming up in you when a friend reproaches you about a fault, you can be fairly sure that at this point you will find a part of your shadow. I think this is such a powerful idea where, and it's something I, I, I've tried to remember, but it's, it's a hard thing to remember, which is basically anytime you dislike something about somebody else, that's actually something you dislike about yourself. And mm seeing it reflected in another person is painful because it's a reminder that you have that inside of you as well. It's like the idea of projection too. I mean, it's kind of the same. It's the same idea, mm -hmm. right? It's like, you're, you're like yeah. projecting something that you know you have inside yourself onto not, it's not fully projection. You're like recognizing something in someone else that you also have. And you're kind of also mad that you have that, that same impulse. Yeah. Well, it's like when we all these old Republican senators who were trying to make uh, gay marriage illegal and then got caught giving out blowjobs in airport bathrooms. Right. Yeah. But it's like whenever I see somebody being like super militant about something like publicly or like attacking some group in the back of my head, I'm always like they're they're trying to atone for some sin, either like done or, you know, imagined and. Like uh, something will either come up or there there's some like bad shit going on in their head that uh, you really don't envy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I think we all probably fall prey to this at some level or, you know, some level or another, like, you know, on one hand, like I, I can just say like a very simple example for me is like, I, I don't think I like, like I probably have said a lot on the podcast, even against like scientism. But then I do find myself also like being romantic about that idea. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe we can figure this out and like, you know, we can optimize all these variables. And like, like my mind naturally likes that. It's like that structure and that order and like that understanding. Like I do, I do love that idea. 
and then but then the like shadow side of that is the whole scientism stuff and like often i'll say a lot of things against scientism but it's like yeah i actually naturally like that idea too like i think that would be awesome if that if we could actually figure all that stuff out can we figure it out i don't know and i will continue to shit on people who overly index on scientism but like it it is it is something that i naturally do as well like I, i definitely used to do it a lot more i think than in the last like six or seven years but pre that i was definitely one of like the optimizers i'm sure you've seen that meme i love that meme the one where it's Same. like yeah. have you seen this yeah optimizer <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> yep <laughs> i was definitely one of those all right i know you've got a hard stop neil yep yeah i gotta go in a minute here um but yeah effective altruism kind of falls into that too it's like if we can just you know measure a good you know we can do the maximal good and yeah it's the same i mean it's the same the same thing it's another one of those things where like there's always these unintended consequences. So I I think the EA was super heavy on mosquito nets in Africa for a long time. And then it created an overfishing problem or something because so many nets were getting sent to Africa that they didn't need. And so they started turning them into fishing nets and like stringing them across all the rivers. I I've got to fact check myself on this because I'm, I think it's hearsay, but it, like you never know how some of these things are going to end up playing out, right? <laughs> yeah, there's always something like a second order effect that you couldn't know in advance. Exactly. Yeah, it's the the more you try to control chaos in one area, the more chaos you often create in other areas. So yeah, just all make right. jokes on Twitter all day. Nothing matters. Don't even try. <laughs> Yeah, listen to or yeah exactly <laughs> what was the thing like as the titanic uh sinks uh, laugh yeah as laugh titanic as the titanic sinks. sinks exactly drain the bar yeah <laughs> hey might as well have fun while all that's happening yeah exactly <laughs> all right we gotta wrap up uh yeah let's wrap up <laughs> Buy this, check out this book ne- um, next i think it's interesting to read it's an interesting book to read. I think we there's a lot more than even we got into, especially in the later chapters. It just is more in depth. The same ideas. I like thirty percent recommend the book. I didn't love it that much. Maybe just read the first section. The um, first section was the best. I thought I got kind of sure. Like the first section and the conclusion. Yeah. Yes, maybe. and the intro was pretty good too. But. Surprisingly, I don't know if you read the intro, but yeah, yeah, I thought the intro was pretty good too. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Yeah. Um. Yeah, next uh, book is probably End the Fed, I think, is probably the next one. We're doing with Yeah, I think it's the End deal. the Fed or Revolt of the Public. Yeah, yeah with a deal. Those so. are the next two a deal series. It, it sounds like ones. he didn't like End the Fed very much. So Yeah, I, that's true. I, if, it, yeah, if it's not I, good, uh, we can scrap we can it. Do Revolt of, but. Yeah, it's a quick one. It's a quick it, I think it wouldn't be just about that book if we did that. It would probably we'd have to bring in some other like we'd have to do like multiple things in that episode. Because it's also very short. It's more like yeah, a long essay. Right, right. We'll figure yeah, it out. It's not really like a book book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Revolt to the Public. And then I don't... Oh, and then Alchemy of Alchemy of Finance, right? We're doing that one. That's the next me and you book. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Sounds great. Yeah, I'd started that one. Uh, George Soros. So we're going to get uh, hate from all the like anti-Soros people. But whatever. It's a good book from what I'm, how to I mean, I've read. The world. It's going to be it. great. Exactly. <laughs> That's a great title. How to control the world. The alchemy of finance. How to control the world. <laughs> That's going to be the episode title. <laughs> That's the title. Yep. That's the title. Um, 
yeah, in the meantime, leave us a review. Shout us, shout us out on Twitter. Say hi on Twitter. Make fun of us on Twitter. Do some, do whatever. Tell people about this. Um, all good things. All good things. Only leave a good review though. If you're gonna leave a bad review, just tweet at us instead. Yeah, only good reviews. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Get it out on Twitter. Um, Alrighty. All right. We'll see you guys next time. See you guys next time. Thanks.